It is Friday, the 21st of June, 2019. My name is Jeremy Medlin, and welcome to episode 45 of the Stock Market Movers podcast. Just a quick reminder that nothing that I say today should be considered financial advice. And if you're looking for financial advice, I recommend that you speak to an authorised financial advisor. So the big news for the week, and you know, we're just going to get straight into it, and, and probably for the month actually, is is on the NZX, is the, was the IPO of Canna South. And a vibrant... IPO market. This would not normally make too much news, but it's made headlines for two reasons. Number one, it is the first IPO in New Zealand for something like two years. Two, it is a medicinal marijuana company. I think I flagged up the potential of this IPO back in February in episode 26, so go back and have a listen to that if you like, or just listen to today. So the news has been floating around about this for a while. Um, I was excited to find out what the ticker code was going to be. Marijuana companies have a good reputation for funny ticker code codes. It's, it's not like back in the day where Ford IPOs under the ticker code F or anything like that. Canopy Growth, for example, trades on the Toronto Exchange under, under the ticker code Weed. So to be honest, Canada South didn't disappoint here. I mean, they have chosen the ticker code CBD. So when I was growing up and studying geography at school, CBD stood for the central business district in a, in a city. But I, I took to Urban Dictionary to get some other definitions of CBD, and there, there are plenty of definitions. CBD could stand for could be down, for example, or cute but dumb. And there are plenty of other meanings that I'm not going to throw into the show because it would make it an R-rated podcast, but you can you can Google those on Urban Dictionary. So the most likely answer for the ticker code is the definition of CBD as a naturally naturally occurring cannabinoid. If I've said that right, constitution constituent sorry of cannabis. So I've, that's obviously a, a mouthful, at least for me. So I'm not going to pretend to know what a cannabinoid. I can't even say it properly. Can't, anyway, you know what I mean. I'm not going to pretend to know what it is. So just like I'm not, I'm not going to pretend to give you too much of an insight of, of what Canna South does. I haven't taken the time to read the prospectus or do any real research on them. Warren Buffett famously says that you, sh- you should have your circle of competence and understanding and stay well within that. And it's fair to say that medicinal marijuana companies fall well outside that circle for me. So I, I just didn't really give it the time of day. So that's the first disclaimer, or the second disclaimer of the episode. You should take what I say with a, a grain of salt because I, I don't really know what I'm talking about. And But you will know from listening to the podcast that in general, I am bearish on investment in marijuana-related stocks. And by this, I mean that as, as a basket or a group, I think that there will be poor investments with the odd bright star. In the same way that internet stocks in general were poor long-term investments in 1999, but there was the odd bright star like Amazon, for example. So, But I, I am probably bullish on the future legislation of marijuana-related products. By this, I, I mean they'll eventually be legal and it will probably happen. Anyway, so... I do not have any opinion on the company itself. So what I, I, what I, but what did the media and the analyst community have to say? So Brian Gaynor, a famous NZX commentator, in his article in the Herald said, "Canada's House share structure is reminiscent of the bad old mid nineteen eighties. In other words, I believe the Canada South IPO has a structure that primarily benefits existing shareholders rather than those participating in an IPO. So not not." 
it's not unsurprising for a company that's IPO. And obviously, <laughs> when you IPO, you want to get the maximum price possible for the company. So it, it, it's normally structured in the way that benefits existing shareholders. Anyway, so Share Clarity said, and Canada South, and this is probably a, a good descri- description or a good summary anyway, Canada South is a very early stage investment that has been priced 70 to 200% higher than later stage IPOs and 25 to 100% higher than other established medicinal cannabis companies on the Australian Stock Exchange. Canada South is a startup cannabis research and development company that generates no revenues, owns no substantive assets, has no products in the market or in development, has no commercial agreements apart from some non-exclusive licenses to import cannabis, seeds and plants, and it cannot start to sell products in New Zealand without, without government reforms that are far from certain. So it's not saying it's necessarily a bad company there. It's just saying it's in it's it's in the early stage of its development, and and you know in some ways there's nothing wrong with investing in a company in its early stage of development as long as you realise that's what you're doing. So Hamish Sharma from Australian Trading Management, which is a company I actually have a small shareholding in, just for full disclosure, he sums it up quite well from a price action perspective. Clearly, this is an extremely high risk investment, which has been priced at an eye watering valuation, and saying that. With retail investor appetite for the sector, the price reaction post IPO could go either way. Watch this space, and you know Hamish obviously wrote that prior to the IPO, and and, and the stock is down so far twenty percent odd after IPO. And Hamish is right; everyone is watching the space, and that is what you get when you're the first IPO in, in years, and you're in a hot industry like this. So, like I said, I won't be personally quoted on what I think of the company, but we can simply look at the basic numbers. And by all, all accounts, the, as Sheer Clarity said, the company is still in at the research phase and, and makes no revenues or profits at the moment. So a company that is making no revenue or profits is going to have some costs. So just as a base case, there'll be some leasing, staffing and research costs and a whole bunch of other costs as well. So they're going to be losing money. That, that's, a, that's a given. And not that, that not that it's a bad thing if they make a lot more money in the future. So I'm not sure how long it will take them to generate revenues and if it's going to even get to the revenue stage at all. For example, there's a lot of bi- biotech companies in the United States that are very valuable, but they never get to the revenue stage because someone else comes along and buys them. But judging from the sheer clarity quote, it might be a while because it looks like they're going to have to work around the government. So let's have a look at the, the basic numbers. Looks like there's 102 million shares outstanding. So the shares dropped from the first price at 51 cents to around 40 cents. So that, that's close enough to a, a $40 million valuation as it stands now. And so the question is, if you had $40 million, would you pay $40 million for this company? And that's what you have to ask yourself. And of course, you're not paying $40 million, but you're actually getting an economic proportion of the company that's relative to that. So don't get me wrong, this could be a very successful investment the company could hit marijuana gold so to speak they could come up with a medical product that takes you to mars and does all this amazing stuff and eventually generate a lot of revenues and and profits for the company and its shareholders and if you could figure this out and invest in this basis you'd make a significant amount of problems profits uh, you're not gonna have problems you're gonna have profits so that is one outcome but one thing i can tell you is that if you're making an investment career out of investing in speculative research companies at valuations of $40 million that have no revenues or profits, then net-net on average, you're probably going to lose over the long term unless you're very good at picking the individual winners. So that's what you have to be good at in these sorts of investments is picking the individual winners and over 
and and not turning over the stones where there's plenty of losers, if that makes sense. But that's not the only way to make money on a stock like this. Um, like Hamish said, the price reaction could go either way. It's been down at the moment, but it doesn't mean it's going to stay like that. So even if you didn't know what was going to happen with the underlying business, you could speculate as to what was going to happen with the stock. So as we know, the stock is often a separate entity from the business, at least in the short term. And basically what you're saying here is, I hope someone else is going to buy it off me for more later. That is what you're relying on in, in that situation. And that, that could happen. And it certainly could, especially in a, a sexy stock market sector like the marijuana space. You know, that, that's what people have been waiting this IPO for, so they can invest in marijuana. Also, it, it could be that someone comes in and buys the whole company. And in that situation, you'll probably generate a lot of profit. Maybe they develop something at the research phase that, I don't know, canopy growth in Canada thinks is, is great for them and they, and they come in and, and pay a huge premium for the stock. It's certainly it's not out of the realms of, of imagination, that's for sure. So it would be interesting to see how how this one plays out. Just just before we move on to the next topic, though, it's 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 ironic in some ways that this IPO has received mostly critical press. It it seems like one of those lose lose situations for the NZX, and it's obviously not a lose lose because they've got another stock that's now been traded in that, and those trades are generating commissions and everything like that. So it's obviously not a lose lose financially. But first, you you don't have enough IPOs, and and then you know you're getting criticised for the IPOs that that come out so it's an ironic situation really so from the glamorous and high-paced world of medical marijuana to the less sexy but probably more important world of fpos shows how, how things change though eh? i mean could you imagine 20 years ago talking about a medical marijuana company being publicly traded it's just, it would have you would have been laughed out of the out of the room but yeah it shows how, how things move along and it'll be interesting to see what what industries um uh buzzing along in, in 20 years time that we can't really think of now although I, I don't think we'll have i don't think we'll have medical cocaine companies or, or anything like that in 20 years time although i could be wrong so 20 years ago, we, we did have FPOS, and, and that's what I'm going to talk about now. I guess there was a time when FPOS was new, sexy, and exciting as well, but it's probably not these days. It's, it's, it's just part of what we do now. So SmartPay, they released their annual report at the back end of last week. I don't think that it's a company that I've mentioned before on the podcast. They trade on the NZX under the ticker code SPY, or, or SPY, I guess you could say not to be confused with the most well-known S&P 500 ETF, which is also known as the SPY. They also have a ticker code in Australia this time under the code SMP. That's S for Sierra, M for Mother, P for Peter. Quite an interesting company. They'd have to be one of New Zealand's oldest listed on the NZX. Just checking with the issuer details on direct broken and it says they were first listed in 1987. I'm not sure if, if they've been smart pay for the whole time or if there's been a name change or perhaps worse reverse listing. I, I, I couldn't find this out directly so perhaps if someone knows the answer they can fill me in. So what they do seems pretty easy to understand. They essentially offer, offer FPOS Till rental and till systems. According to their website, they have a thirty. They have over thirty-five thousand terminals in the market, and they support twenty-five thousand merchants. So they're a pretty easy company to understand, and they're a reasonably important company. You know, twenty-five thousand FPOS 
merchants. That's a, a, re, a reasonable whack in New Zealand. Um, and, you know, you, you, you know what they do from, you know, buying something with your credit or debit card. So it's an easy company that you already intuitively understand. So they have a market capitalization of around 30 million Kiwi. Um, as, as you can imagine with FPOS Rental, it is a reasonably consistent business. Their revenues between 2014 and 2019 have ranged between 22 and 20 million, with FPOS being around for years and with most people that have one, have that have that want one have a solution, you know, your, your way of growing is by taking market share from an existing player. So from a business model perspective, it seems pretty straightforward in terms of understanding. And there are obviously, and it's fair to say, I understand this a, a lot better than Canada South, for example. I like companies that you can intuitively understand from your day-to-day life. There's no, and this is not a, a dig at Canada South or anything like that, but there's no way in my day-to-day life that I'm going to get my head my head wrapped around an understanding of a medicinal marijuana company. And there might be some people that in their day-to-day life can do that, but I, <laughs> you have to wonder what you'd be doing. But anyway, um, but I, I, I certainly can't. And you know, with with an FPOS till rental company essentially you know i can i can wrap my head around that pretty pretty fast so there's obviously some pretty big changes happening in the payment space i think long term trend we'll see a, a lot more payment types bypass the fpos terminal and that says technology i guess it's, you're going to see a diversification in payment opportunities i think until very recently pretty much the only way to pay was fpos and credit cash and bank transfer, whereas now you're seeing a myriad of, of other ways of paying for things, and this is before we even get onto cryptocurrencies and what else. You know, you've got things like Uber, for example, is a, a, an example. You, you you pay for your taxi through your Uber. Um, or WeChat, which you're seeing just take over payments in, in China, as an example. So, but in saying that, despite this, it's, it's pretty obvious to me that FPOS is going to be at a big part of how we pay for things, at least for the material future. Are we still going to be paying paying for things with plastic cards in in fifty years time? Maybe not. And smart pay will, will have to diversify their, their business model, but things are going to be an awful lot different in fifty years time compared to what they are now, just like things were an awful lot different fifty years ago compared to what they are now and we still survived. Anyway, so the chairman Greg Barclay commentate, com, commentated, commented in the annual report, we have a very solid and stable business in New Zealand with a strong presence in the New Zealand market. That business continues to under, underpin and support our expanding business in Australia. So the company is looking to grow further into Australia and they have done a, a capital raising through a convertible note of 7.7.5 million Aussie. So people often ask me, how do you assess the quality of management? And, well, I guess following SmartPay, for example, and and seeing how management delivers a return on that $7.5 million investment and how they deliver on the promise of growth in Australia will be a good indication of this. You know, will will it be a company that can succeed in Australia? If if they do, and and they do deliver fantastic growth into Australia and profits from that, and profitable growth from that, then you know you'd have to say that management have hit the nail on the head. Or will it be another New Zealand business where it would have been better for shareholders if they stuck to their knitting and their good, consistent business in New Zealand? And we all know how easy it is to to blow money in expansion in Australia. And 
especially in an established industry like this where, like I said before, your whole business model, since everyone already has a solution, is to take market share from someone else. So it's not necessarily an easy open canvas to expand in. And just, just thinking out loud before we move on, for those that like to follow the economy and make macro forecasts, this is this is, this stock would be a, a real bellwether for the wider economy, especially in New Zealand where they have deep market penetration. If you followed their payment data, and I'm I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure it would provide a pretty good snapshot of the economy and spending habits and everything like that. If you really got into their data, you could figure a lot of the stuff out. I bet anyway. Anyway, for for most of their annual report, they they bore you with corporate governance and direct remuneration and, and everything like that's stuff that's undoubtedly important but they waste about 30 pages on so getting to the to the financial statements revenue is relatively flat up slightly year on year but still below where it was in 2015 and higher operating expenditures through the through the company put them into a, into a, an accounting loss um, the company gets whacked with a pretty large depreciation charge through to the FPOS terminals. Um, I imagine when you're leasing them out to people, you're writing it off pretty quickly. And on, on the balance sheet, the, the company is more debt than what you would, I think you would like to see. Um, and it looks like they have been attempting somewhat successfully to, to pay this down. You know, they paid back precisely $3 million in debt in 2019, but it's still relatively high at $18 million. And if if they had less debt, I'm sure the, the shareholders would have liked to have seen that $3 million as a dividend, but the fact is they have that debt and they need, they need to reduce it, in my opinion. Um, a, a consistent, slow-growth company like this, you really should be pounding out the dividends. That's, that's my opinion. And that, that's the feeling I get when I read this report. A $3 million dividend on a $30 million market cap is, is 10%. And if they were able to pay a $3 million dividend every year, you would likely see that the stock would be revalued to around a 6% dividend yield. And suddenly you have a company that's worth $50 million. And you, you know that, that that's the opportunity cost here for shareholders with the spending money on growth in Australia. And in my view, they need to deliver a return in, in excess of $20 million for shareholders from this growth in Australia to make it worth it. Otherwise, it's, it's not because they've got easier options. And no doubt it's a big enough market, but you just wonder in, in this situation that if, it's, if that's an equation that they've run through as management. So I don't know. So just to put things into context as to how big the the debt pile was for SmartPay relative to the to the to the profitability. So they had one point eight million dollars in finance costs in the two thousand nineteen financial year. So that will predominantly be interest that they've had to pay on their debt. So everyone knows when you borrow money you have to pay interest on it. And you know, we talk about price to earnings ratios and things and, and whatnot, but if that one point eight million dollars was earnings, then the the PE would be around seventeen times, and you know there's there's so many companies that would kill for you know that a, a seventeen times price to earnings ratio on this market for a lot of companies is considered cheap, so yeah that I guess the so I guess I've I've painted a, a pretty bleak picture of some capital allocation there, so I guess the alternative outcome is that Smart Pay hits it out of the park with its Australian expansion generates tons of cash, pays off its debts and starts spewing out dividends because there is so much cash that they're literally swimming in it. And, you know, it might as well be back in its owner's pockets in that case. And that is what I like, people, companies that are, are swimming in, in their own cash. 
So the opposite of swimming in cash would be setting your cash on fire. And I got a, a question from Callum Stewart on the Facebook group during the week, and this was of after last week's episode where we talked about short selling. Callum asked, have you ever looked into an episode focusing on over-the-counter derivatives? And I haven't looked into it specifically, but I think it would make a good topic perhaps for another day. I would like to take some time to talk about a specific type of over-the-counter derivative. So over-the-counter, let's just call it OTC, means contracts that are done directly between two parties without an without going through a regulated exchange. So you essentially just miss out the exchange and, and do a financial transaction, and they often appear like a legitimate transaction which has gone through an exchange, but they haven't. So OTC, that's what it's referring to. So the derivative part of it refers to a financial contract where the value is derived from somewhere else. So the, OT, the OTC derivative that a lot of listeners will be most familiar with is called a CFD or contract for difference. So a CFD is a contract between two parties, basically a, a broker and a client, stipulating that the seller will pay the buyer the difference between the current value of an asset and its value at contract time. So it's, it's pretty simple. So if, if you buy something for $10 and you sell it for 11, you've made a dollar, just like in stocks. So what is unique about this is that it usually comes with a lot of leverage and it's usually provided by the other party. So in this case, you're going to be the client and the broker is going to provide the leverage. So it might be leveraged up 10 to 1 or even 1,000 to 1, which I have seen in some FX CFDs. So that's foreign exchange CFDs. I had a client once that referred to CFDs as contracts for dickheads. And that, that is what they truly are. They, they're, they're contracts for dickheads. My advice to anyone contemplating get into, getting into the markets is that if, if you come across them, stay away. I used to work for a company that offered CFDs as part of their product offering. And I can tell you that I, I didn't see many people making money. Um, basically, the, the person on the other side of the trade is your broker. And that, that puts you against your broker straight away. It's like a casino. They make money when you lose. And like a casino, the odds are stacked in their favor. You know, you might win over the short term, but more often than not, in, in an aggregate, the clients lose. And when the when the when the clients win big time, it often puts the <laughs> it often puts the broker out of business, which means everyone loses. So it really is a, a terrible situation. They often lower you into a in, into it by saying that there's no brokerage or commission fee, and like like anything, there's there's no such thing as a free lunch. So what what really I, I'm I'm always very very skeptical of of brokerage companies that offer no fees I and mean, they're, they're not a charity that they, they don't do it for free so you've always got when something's for free in the financial markets you've really got to got to question it except this podcast which is awesome by the way so what really kills you and can kill you quick is the margin it doesn't take much if you leverage a 100 to 1 to get kicked out of the game so smart people have have given me you know reasons why cfds can be a good thing and you know, look like any other financial product they can serve a purpose but for most for, for, for most people in general they should be avoided i know that the regulators in the uk have taken steps to regulate out cfds or spread or spread betting as they call it over there you know at least they <laughs> at least they call it by its name in the uk betting they have a betting in there i'd like to see the fma do the same in new zealand i'd to be honest i'd, I'd like to see them ban it for retail investors in new zealand and, and say look you can only do it if you're a wholesale investor but that's just my view and what they are actually is is modern day bucket shops 
go to Wikipedia and search bucket shops. So bucket shops existed in the 1900s in, in the US, in the early 1900s. Um, and I'm reading word for word from Wikipedia here. So a bucket shop is an establishment nominally for the transaction of a stock exchange business or business of similar character, but really for the registration of bets or wages, usually for small amounts on the rise or fall of the prices of a stock. But there not being any transfer or delivery of the stock, and that's exactly what the CFD is. It's, it appears to be a stock exchange business, but you're actually making bets on the rise or fall of stock, price, stock prices, but with leverage. So <laughs> you're wondering where the term bucketeering came from and, and what a bucketeer is, and that's bucketeer, sorry, and that's exactly what it is. So, you know, anyway, th these shops were, were criminalised in the United States and put out of business, so they were banned. You know, they decided way back then when, you know, they didn't know as much as what we know now that these things needed to be banned, but there's been a rebirth of them in the financial market since the internet came about in the form of CFDs. And unlike short selling, which I think has a place in the market, I, I think that the downsides for the the existence of CFDs far outweigh the the upside. So take my advice, stay away from contracts for dickheads. Hey, so just before I go, I've done some work upgrading the website. I've basically added a blog to the website and some other features. So head along to the website, go to www.stockmarketmovers.co.nz. At the moment, there is only one blog, blog post, but I'll be you know, looking to do more blog posts every week, so so please do check it out. It, it's still in development, but sort of a, a, a beta version for now, but it does the trick. So head along, stick your email address in, and I'll send out notifications for when new blog posts come out. But, you know, hopefully it's a, a service that adds some more value to the to the podcast as well. So many thanks again for listening to the podcast. As a reminder that nothing that I said today should be considered financial advice. And if you're looking to find out more about the podcast, go to the website I mentioned before, www.stockmarketmovers.co.nz or find us by giving it a like, search on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and now the blog as well. Make sure also to share it with your friends. If you want to email me, it is jeremy at stockmarketmovers.co.nz. Once again, my name is Jeremy Medlin and this has been episode 45 of the Stock Market Movers podcast for Friday the 21st of June 2019. We'll see you all again next week.